Hello, and welcome to Business Without with me, Andrew Ori. And I am joined today by two marvelous people, uh, Ross Meadows, a uh, fellow member of Uri Clark, a partner in employment law of 10 years. Hello, Ross. Hi, Andy. And Alison Coward, who is a business owner of a business called Bracket, which is a collaboration and facilitation business uh, for more than 10 years. She's also an author uh, in the subject of collaboration. Hello, Alison. Hello. And uh, uh, Alison, tell me a little bit more about Bracket. Uh, so Bracket is a consultancy. Uh, we focus on team collaboration and team culture. We do a lot of workshop facilitation. So companies often ask me to come in and do things like um, design and facilitate their away days, their strategy days, brainstorming sessions, project kickoffs. But I also do things like coaching, team coaching, training, speaking, consultancy, anything that is about getting teams working better together. Um, and I primarily work um, in teams with teams that have kind of creativity and innovation as a main part of what they do. Okay, very good. And it's t- team teamwork as it is. That's a particular passion of yours then, is it? Yeah, yeah. And it has been for a long time. So I started off my career in the creative industries. Um, I used to provide support to um, business support to independent practitioners. So people like artists and designers and graphic designers. Um, first part of my career, uh, well, actually the, the last job that I had before I set up Bracket was running the Enterprise Centre at the University of the Arts London. Um, and before that, I'd done an MA, Enterprise Management for the Creative Arts. And I just got very interested in like what were what were the support mechanisms that we needed to help freelancers, independent creatives to become more business minded, because there's a massive amount of self-employment in the creative industry. Oh, you, you just said something there, you're an M- you did an MA in... Enterprise and Management for the Creative Arts. Enterprise and Management for the Creative yeah, Arts. Yeah, so it's kind of like a business degree. Herding for, Kurt, cats, is that the effect? Uh, that's, that's what I specialised in. Um, it was kind of like a business degree, but for the creative industries and for the arts. Yeah. So it was kind of tailored. It wasn't just kind of traditional business. It was tailored for um, the environment that the creative industries work within, in the fact that many people that work for themselves in the creative industries don't necessarily set up in business and become self-employed because they want to set up a business. It's because they want to practice what they love doing. Um, And the business side of things comes later. So they're not often skilled um, or they're not often taught. I can't say they're not skilled, but they're not often taught in university or in their the careers, how to become self-employed. Oh, I see. So if you study fashion or, or exactly. whatever, you you don't you don't really appreciate how to put a business together. And exactly, exactly. Well, you're not taught it. I think you probably appreciate it, but the, definitely the university that I was at the time, um, the the enterprise element was seen as a secondary part to the mm. to the. It's the almost the primary skills. part, would you say? Well, well, I think there's a balance. It's you a know, balance. Not everyone wants to become self-employed. Yeah. Um, so that was my passion before I set up Bracket, and when I did my MA, I wanted to understand what were the factors that affected creative businesses as opposed to kind of traditional businesses. And when I did lots of reading around the creative industries, I realised that collaboration um, and networks were such a massive part of people you know, freelancers developing their businesses and forming connections and having access to and what is it? What, and, and these networks, these are just what literally who they know? You, who you they mean? know, who they know. Yeah. And um, connections. And so, it. and this is where the source of work, their source of... Source of work, source of collaborators, like people who they bring into projects, source of referrals, source of social life. Yes. Um, and actually the important word is collaboration, which is I always think in, in music or in art, like you, you do collaborate mm-hmm. and it's very challenging to collaborate. Exactly. And, and, and it's about, especially if you're in an arts thing, your sensitivity of your ego and what you like and what you think you should be doing. And in, in other industries, I notice collaboration is 
Well, it's probably, it, it, it's, it, maybe it's less intense or something, you know? Well, I mean, that's interesting because I, I totally agree with you. I, I do believe that, you know, collaboration is necessary definitely within the creative sector and it's challenging as well you know it's not just as easy as putting talented people in a room together and hoping it's going to happen but what I've seen because this was like 10 actually 15 years ago when I did my MA and I I I don't know if I predicted but I kind of had a sense that actually this seems to be something that there's something here and I now since I've been developing Bracket and running Bracket I've seen how that way of working has become more common within companies and the reason that's become more common within companies is because there's a greater need for creativity and innovation in companies now as well. So they need to work in that way. What do you mean by this way of working? More collaborative, more collaborative, more agile. What does that mean? Give me sort of some examples. So the the idea that, um, you know, if you've got a challenge to to solve, a problem to solve as an industry or as a business, most of those problems now are so complex, much more complex that it's not possible to solve it by one person. Mm. It needs a diverse set of knowledge and expertise, which means you need to often bring specialists together. Um, And by nature of those specialists coming together, they're going to have to collaborate on Mm. solving that problem together. And And that's becoming more more common. So you bring bring in five people, someone who understands packaging and someone understands marketing, you get them in a room and then what happens? So that's where I might come in. You know, if a company understands the need for someone like me to come in, that's when they'll bring me in. And I I will um, speak to a client beforehand and figure out like, what it is that they want to get by the end of that session. What problem is it that they're trying to solve? And I'll design a session, almost like a series of like focused discussions to make sure that um, that group get to the outcome rather than sort of going around the houses. They, yeah, yeah. You know, what, what, something I, as I've seen your work, I, I think mm. what strikes me is that we're all communicate in different ways and we have different strengths in our communication, i.e. how confident we are, how eloquent we are and these things. And so to me, it's trying to bring together disparate people, some who may, someone who might be, have bad body language, bad communication, but they're not really an arsehole. They just got mm-hmm. bad. And, and therefore you break down the conversation into bite-sized pieces that are often using, you know, simple techniques of almost list writing or getting people to sort of, you know, break, okay, we've got this aspect and no one's saying anything at the table except someone like me who's going on and on and on and on and ruining the conversation. So, you know, it's, it's okay, why don't you all write down? Yeah. And that, there's something about writing down that's very... Um, Unaggressive, and, and is that is that the way you make everyone connect? Um, in some ways, I mean, that's not the only exercise that I do. Um, I do use a lot of post-it notes, so you know, I've worked with you guys before, and like, post-it notes are always a massive feature when I I do that. I you know, we have a question, I put a question out there, and I ask everyone to have a moment to think first and write down their ideas on post-it notes. Um, and that does what it does is it gives people a bit of time to think, a bit of time um, to breathe. Yeah, because there are going to be you know, there's different personalities in a room. There's going to be in introverts and there's going to be extroverts and there's going to be ambiverts and there's going to be whoa, people. Whoa, 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 whoa. I've only recently learned the actual definition of introverts and extroverts. What's an ambivert? Oh, so ambivert is somewhere in between the two. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So. And the actual definition is, is an introvert is someone who 
uh, gains energy from being on their own. Right, and exactly. An extrovert is someone who gains energy from being yeah. with other people. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So what the way that plays out in a in a group session is that the extroverts naturally, the minute they have an idea, they want to start talking about it because that, <laughs> that's how you're laughing, Andy, because you're like totally like that. We've seen it in the sessions. An introvert wants to have a little bit of time to kind of just digest their ideas. Well, also, they'll they get speak. tired during the meeting. Whereas, no, no, they'll get well in theory because be they're quite, with people. It could be quite exhausting for them um, I'm an introvert and actually I get exhausted by running workshops because Gee. I'm around people quite a lot and it's quite an intense thing so after workshop I often have to go and lie in a dark room for a bit and kind of get my energy I back think what, I, what I find fascinating about the subject is I think there's an and it's almost a stiff upper lip post-war British culture that we've got this sort of you know there's an attitude of like oh just bloody get on with it and stiff upper lip and say what you think and stuff whereas Really, as you say, you're dealing with quite complex problems, complex people, and just sticking people in a room. I, I Actually, I, where I draw it from, and, and someone else explained this to me, so I, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a sexist comment, is that it's the sort of, originally it was a male-dominated space. Men like to get in a room and basically lock horns and have it out, and then they go to the pub. And that's their kind of sort of, you know, it's simplifying it down. That's how we deal with things. We go head to head, we shout at each other if necessary. And then what's the work environment's changed? change so much so it's a sexist way of saying it but effectively it's not just a bloke of a bunch of aggressive sea level men anywhere Mm. and anymore in a room trying to have it out you know you've got all types of diversities and different ways of of, of acting and i i bring the sex in because i work with my sisters and i've learned over the years that me just talking me just thinking I'm making a point to them makes them burst into tears sometimes, you know, because I'm pointing at them and I don't even, I just, I'm just, I think mm. I'm making a point. I mean, I'd, I'd agree to that in in some extent. I mean, there is, you know, an element of the culture there that's been developed. Um, I mean, I would say that there's diversities within men as well. You know, sure. there are some men that find that kind of behaviour much but more common. But the question common. is, why don't we do it in a, if, if it's more logical, which it is to break it down into mm. it, why is it such a new thing? It's not, an, it's not necessarily a new thing. I think the idea of it has become a lot more, um, the need for it has become a lot more apparent because of the way that we're working. I mean, I think I, I probably would find, or you probably find, going back to the 1960s, um, articles about how to make your meetings better. Right. Right. I don't think they saying similar things to meetings they do today. have never ever been like brilliant. Um, but as I say, because the way that we're working has changed so much, increasingly the importance of us getting into a room and having collaborative, productive, focused discussions has increased like tenfold, even in the time that I've been doing this, the need for this kind of stuff that I do has also increased. So I don't think it's never been there. I just think that it's just become a lot more apparent that this this is needed. And the problems perhaps have got broader and more complicated oh, as technology. So we need more, more lots more skill sets. I mean, if we went back a exactly. hundred years, we're, we're, you know, this business is changing, you know, and changed. also the way that organisations are working as well. You know, um, you know, there's arguments around whether a hierarchical structure is fit for the type of work that we need to do now because you know we need to um, we need to decentralize we need to harness talent um we need to make sure that everybody feels comfortable um having their say we know that the great best ideas don't just come from the top of an organization so how do we open up those communities and 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 i think i think that you know it's a challenging role being able to connect everything because on the one hand you've got well 
this is how businesses are developing and, and they have to think this way. And then you've got the human side, um, you know, the, the different types of leaders, the different personalities. How can you get the best out of everyone to, to get that delivery? And it's, it's like you say, Alison, there can be things missed from someone in that scale who might never have um, had the voice heard. Yeah, and that, that's a big part of what I do, actually. Like, it's probably one of the um, sort of the underlying... Supporting the unheard. The underlying factors to why I do what I do. It's like, how do you make sure the people that don't usually have an opportunity to speak, they can speak I'm and great, they can have I, their I, ideas yeah, I, heard? I, I, actually, I think people always are given an opportunity to speak, but from their perspective, perhaps it's mm. not an I don't know if people do, you know, do you may not? feel that people have the opportunity to speak. Like if you get in a room and you say to people, right, I want to hear everyone's ideas. There's so many layers there as to why they may not speak up. You know, it may be that there's a... That is an opportunity to speak. It's an though. opportunity to speak. But if there's a senior person in the room who's got a history of shouting down ideas yeah, yeah, the minute yeah. they're spoken, then people aren't going to want to speak up, even though that person says, I want to hear your ideas. Like why is it in their best interest to speak up when they know mm. that they're going to be shot down. So it's it's cultural as well. It's not just about giving people the opportunity. It's like, do they have, are they in a culture where they feel safe to speak up and like share their ideas, even if those ideas aren't well formed? And, I mean, you've said a key word there, which is, you know, the concept of safety, which is a sort mm. of a, a concept that, you know, people speak when they feel, as you say, they're not going to get shouted down. I mean, there's those rules, isn't it? That their views are respected, that they're, they're, they're not going to be, you know, criticised. And I mean, to me, I, I, I've always found uh, it, it's a surprising thing sometimes to me, but you've got to try and keep the personal and the business separate. So it's a language thing. But, you know, just because I've argued about something, it doesn't, to me, it, sh it doesn't, shouldn't have an impact, but it has this it impact. It absolutely does have yeah, an impact. Yeah, of course it, it does. does. There's, a, there's a really great bit of research, I always talk about this, that was done by Google um, a few years ago called Project Aristotle. Um, and what they did was they did um, internal Aristotle? research. He was the one in the bath, was he? Anyway, carry on. They did some internal research into their high-performing teams um, and they wanted to understand what, what, um, what was the kind of the secret source or the makeup of the their most high-performing teams because they wanted to understand and start replicating it. And they did all of this research and they thought that they were going to come up with really tangible things like um, the IQ of the team members and where people went to school and their like results and their experience. And when they did this research, they came out with things like, you know, people feel that they can see the purpose of their work or they can see that their work has meaning and mm. there's kind of structure and clarity. And at the top, um, the, the sort of most effective factor by far was this idea of psychological safety, which is a, a term that was coined, coined by an academic called Amy Edmondson. And psychological safety is the idea that you can speak up and you can make mistakes and you can take risks and you're not going to get ridiculed or blamed mm. for that. And that was a massive factor in high performing teams because it makes sense, right? If you've got like the kernel of an idea um, that might not work and if you feel that if you speak up and it goes wrong, then you're going to get the blame, then you'd rather not say that idea. Actually, if you have a culture where people feel um, that you know, their ideas are going to, you can say whatever, it can be stupid and it can fail further down the line, but it's a learning opportunity, then you're more likely to get innovation because mm. more ideas are being well, shared. A wonderful example of that, then. isn't it? The uh, the straw test, the famous, the, the famous, well, no, no, you do the um, the famous thing that if you take toddlers and you ask them to build a tower out of straws. Oh, the marshmallow challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that they, they outperform the highest qualified people. Did because, I show you that video? Actually, so, I read it in the culture code. 
which okay, uh, yeah. another book that's all in the same space, yeah, books yeah. analysing, well, why do teams do really well? And yeah. it's about the teams, do, basically, it's the German football team. It's like, don't have lots of individual players who are, you know, Maradona. Just get people to work in as a team and we're much more successful. Same as, same as how humans have progressed. If you, yeah. you know, study human evolution, it's like, why did the monkeys do so well? Well, we just got, we're fucking brilliant at teamwork, humans. And actually a lot of the feelings we feel, whether it be jealousy, some nasty feelings, they're all rigged up to this sort of how we work together as a team, you know, because when I get jealous, I actually copy and I do all these things start happening, very strong emotions. But this sort of, you, if you took 10 people and got them working well together and, and 10 individuals, but it doesn't mean me that a toddler smashes because the yeah. toddlers don't they don't do psychological safety yeah and they They're just like, they just start experimenting mm. straight away they don't do this sort of who are you who's in charge are you the guy are you the girl you know this sort of which is what you're saying they set up for the hierarchy yeah. it's no fair phrase. isn't it it's it's having no fear in well I'm going to say this yeah. and and actually I'm going to listen as well yeah. and and if people respond in the right way even if it's like well no this won't work for for this very reason as 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 long as you have that confidence that well we're going to come up with a great idea here and and it's that team it's yeah. it's all about working as a team you, you work as individuals you're all looking over each other's shoulder at the end of the day and mm. and sometimes even it's a simple thing for how a business remunerates its staff mm. that if they if they remunerate them on a team basis right. you're probably going to get better collaboration between people because they're in this together i've got this really great phrase that i always use and i kind of always pause when i say it because it takes sometimes people a while to kind of think about the order but when i, I say you know how you work together as a team has more of an impact on the success of a team than who is on the team and even what you you're working on which is what you were saying you know you can get people that are individually brilliant but put them in the team together and the team's going to fall apart you get work. people that perhaps aren't so great but they work brilliantly as a team um then you're gonna that team's gonna be successful i wish you were there to tell at junior school uh the people pick you never picked me for football this oh. key fact that just because i was shit at football <laughs> doesn't mean you shouldn't pick me you're on the subs bench um, I'm, I'm, I'm a, <laughs> um you, you know it's funny when i think about it because i actually think it's almost you could go into a room of 20 people and and and, and quite appraise them and say right you guys like to talk a lot you go into one room and argue about it and you're you're quite emotionally aligned once you sort of you know so when i say it's logic it's just like someone can present a bunch of arguments that momentarily i grasp in my head and say yes that's what you know it's pigeonholing it's like it's black and white okay that works for me i can see that as a thing whereas there are other people who want to go in the corner with the facts and grind facts again and again and again and you could almost i mean do you find when you do these things that you do because some things will work better for, do you just do all techniques for all or do you say, well, you guys go in there with the numbers and come out with an answer or? There's a bit, I think there's a bit of both because I think there's there's value in getting all different personality types working together. One thing that sometimes I do do is that um, I, as a facilitator, one of the things is you're always on and you're always, you're not just... Um, introducing the exercises and like writing things up on a flip chart. You're always scanning the room and kind of seeing what's, what's the energy, what's going on, um, who's engaging, who's not engaging. And one of the things that I try to do is just get a sense of who are the people who are more likely to speak up first and feel more comfortable speaking in front of people. And if I can, then I might put um, those types of 
people in a group together when we've got a group discussion. Okay, you do when you yeah. group up, you are doing sometimes, that. Sometimes sometimes I allow do that. people in a sometimes, group. Sometimes sometimes I do that. If it makes sense to do that, then I will. And another thing as well is sometimes, you know, um when I'm getting people to feedback after a group discussion and I know that there's perhaps a couple of people in the room that are more likely, again, to be able to speak up first. I'll come to them last mm. um, because I want to make sure that the people that don't usually speak up get their piece in first. Mm. I mean, it's, it's we, we, we'll probably talk about this more later, but what you're talking about is, is, is very key to us. I mean, one of the things I, I find curious that we talk about is you know, lawyers and accountants, we're basically communicators. You know, your, your job is really to communicate really complicated stuff. So you end up in quite some quite interesting conversations when you say, well, is that a required skill? You know, because I mean, I think, I think it's just interesting when you break it down that you should, in theory, if you went into a law firm or an accountancy firm, surprisingly, you should at the top level find people who are good communicators. I mean, I think, I think on the most part, that's what the job is. I don't know if you agree, Ross. It's sort of on the most, there's a technical aspect, there's a, you know, all these other things. But fundamentally, you're there to communicate with a client, email or verbally. And if you struggle with that as a thing to do, then well, it'll be harder to do your job or... It's the client relationship, isn't it? That yeah. you need to be able to communicate with your client or there's not no relationship at all. And every client's different. So there may be some clients that are not suitable for me and, and that someone Quite else a lot is better equipped. <laughs> 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 yes. And uh, and and it's it's knowing that. And I, and I think even, even that's... If, you, if, you, if you're effective of that going that this isn't the right type of client for me, but I know someone in my team that would get on like a house on fire with that client. I think that's a real, you know, skill that well, you I need. Mean, and Alice yeah. is familiar with it. But the, the other thing that's when you're talking about collaboration in most legal and accounting firms, it's all... They're all owners at the top. You've got it's like getting to the top and having ten CEOs. It's a fucking nightmare. But it's also the different types of like if you, if you just look at what I specialize in, which is employment law. You look at the different type of employment statuses. You know, you've got you've got the person who wants to be the employee. You've got you've got the owner of the business. You know, you've got the different types of, and then the people who want to do the gigs. You know, like the gig economy people. You just want to come in. I'm doing doing this gig. I'm out of here. And, and there's those different types. You know, you see, That's particularly in the you tech apply sector. On an employ on a, on yeah, a, on a job there's spec. different work types, you know, and, and the, you know, it, it could be as a team. It could be that you just need these individuals, these solos who come in, do the job, I'm out. You know, and, and move on. That there are that that happens in in the work I sphere. Mean, the fundamental thing for me is that management is if it's taught. Well, it is taught. It's it's badly taught, or certainly not. We're really exposed. Most people end up in management because they do their technical job well and get promoted, and then suddenly they're a manager. And it and if you start even the layers of what we're talking, we're talking about quite sophisticated management techniques here. You know that you would have to be taught. I mean, splitting teams up, understanding personality types. You know, great mat. You know, I just I always always feel sorry for people doing management. I think it's it's the toughest job you're going to do, you know, and it, it, and to get it right, it's like you, you can't really be everyone's friend. There's so many sort of complexities to it, you know, to be a great manager. I don't even know what we would define as a great manager. You, we would define it in output terms, would we? And that output would be not all the staff walking out and achieving goals and moving the company forward. You know what I mean? But management needs to be challenging. It's like parenting management. It's not, 
it's not something you can say, oh, this manager's a really nice guy. You know, you can always think of the office as the sort of ultimate bad manager. I, I mean, I'd like to challenge that about the parenting. I would say that it's like management, that working as a manager and having a team should be more of an adult-adult relationship because they oh, are sure. adults. No, it's more meaning, the thing is with parenting is that you, you're not always supposed, you can't oh, you always be nice. Yeah, yeah, you don't have to yeah. be. You're, you're in this sort of job where, you're right. So your point would be you think level level playing field is or non-hierarchical non because... Well, look, I've got, I, I guess, you know, facilitation has really influenced the way that I um, work with teams in that, you know, it comes, my style comes from working with creative practitioners and knowing that if I get them in the room, it's not going to work for me to tell them what to do no. because they're all specialists, yes. right? They are, they know what they're doing. Right, I, can't tell, I can't tell them what to do. Like, yeah. I don't know their thing. They know it better than me. My skill is in bringing all of that together and I feel that that style of management works in many places in the workplace because that's also what we need to do in the workplace. We need to bring out the skills and the specialists. That's interesting. So when you, because I remember when you started out, it was more about yeah. getting creative people working right, together. Right. So you ended up in a room with these four fantastic creatives who you thought were lovely people and wasn't wonderful. And you had to develop techniques to actually... Get bring, them. bring out all of their expertise and get them working together. Like these are people that probably hadn't met each other before. Yes. So like, how do I create that like environment for them to feel, again, feel comfortable sharing their ideas, but then making sure that all of those great ideas come to the surface. And what, they, what, what's Alison's top tips then? Does the environment matter? So starting in the room, does a, mm. do we need a particular... The fruit bowl on the table you know is there is anything in the is to the environment important to, to some extent I mean I like when I'm sort of brains doing those kind of sessions it's always good on a very practical level to have a space where you can like get up and stand around the wall and stick post-it notes up yeah, on the okay. wall um, you can move around and there's a bit of natural light um, that's important I think the, the most important thing is around like really understanding the outcome of the session and then designing the session based on that I'd like to ask what's the question actually because you've been in my sessions before yeah. so like what 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 is it about those sessions that you have found useful or not useful i think what your meetings have allowed is is people that um sat sat around in you know in a group of four or five which is what we've done um everyone trying to have the say and, and you suddenly hear something from them that you didn't think they had right um that that, that was something very important that yeah. i found was was that and and i and i I think also I felt like we were, we were going somewhere in the meetings. That that's the key thing is that I hate those meetings where you you walk out and go, what did we achieve there? You know, by the end of the meeting, we've we've achieved something. We've we've said, well, this this is what we're about. This yeah. is what we want to do. Let's take that to the next meeting, and we're, we're going to lead from there. And that, yeah. I th I think that was it. And I th I think it was the. the the way the meetings are set up. It was a very relaxed nature. You know, like we were there to get 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 a job done you know like try and work something out and but you you saw the different teams that there was a little bit of a bounce off off the different teams as well it's good having a third party it's like yeah. the, the speaker yeah. in the house of commons yeah it's very good to have a speaker i also want to pick up on something that ross said as well which is about the power of like workshops and these kinds of sessions and the impact that they have on people's relationships with each other mm. like it's really i think people i think like you underestimate how much the way that you meet can actually drive the culture of your organization mm. if you go into a meeting all the time as an individual and you know you're going into that meeting and you're whatever you like there's no there's no way that you're ever going to get your voice heard 
you're you're just you're just not going to be able to speak up at all because for other, for various reasons, whether it's because you're scared of your manager or because other people are talking too much, it's going to have an impact on how you feel in your work because you're just going to be thinking every meeting I go to, no one wants to hear my mm. ideas, right? And like what you were saying, you know, you, you sit in that room and you hear things from people that you hadn't thought that they had that idea. It starts to change the way that you perceive them, and therefore that starts to spill out in the way that you work together. You're like, oh, I didn't realise that person had that kind of idea. She let me talk to them about this. It's a, it's a go-to then, yeah, yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, so yeah. It, it changed. So I've got this really big thing. This is kind of like my next thing that I'm starting to write about, which is yeah. I call it workshop culture, which is about how like running workshops and running workshops um, as a one-off, but also regularly can start to change the way that an organisation works and the way that a team works to become more collaborative and taking a lot of those features from workshops, either putting them into meetings or into the rest of a team culture can really start to create a bit more of a collaborative environment. I've seen, I mean, I've actually seen it with you as well when I've worked with you over a period of time and, you know, the meetings that we've had, what's happened in between? You know, I heard from one of your partners, um, when I was facilitating a session, like how comfortable people are with using post-it notes now and like kind of brainstorming mm. and things like that and um, the, the, how you've started to create one specific meeting where you go to talk about one p- specific topic because it has this kind of energy. Um, so yeah, it does It does change sort of as you're working, as you do this kind of stuff more frequently, um, it does have an impact on how you I work together the counter overall. argument is that and, and I've heard many clever people make this point that, that meetings are almost the enemy. There's some people who think meetings are the enemy. You know, there's some that's, seriously that's high, well. se- seriously high achieving people. No, no, I, I think there's, there's, there's a depth to it. I think it, it depends who you are. So there's a famous writer, I forget his name, but he puts it very well. But that's kind of because it, there's an inefficiency to it. And also there's the thing, if you've got an organisation of 500 people, you know, how do you disseminate information? Can all of them have meetings? Also, as the meetings get bigger, they become less productive. I mean, you may disagree, but I would imagine that 50 people probably is more confusing it's just than five. Needs, it needs to be a different format. That's the thing. It's like, what is? why do you need to bring those 50 people and together? What percent, let's put it this way. If you, if you had a company of 500 people, in your view, should everyone be having meetings what type of meetings and what percentage of time I know that's so a... it depends on the team like, I think that we can't avoid like if we're going to work more collaboratively we have to meet there's just no other way around about it the thing is is making those meetings productive and being intentional and I can't kind of sit there and say right every organization needs to have this type of meetings because every organization so for is you it's different. a question of how much collaboration is required it's, it's it's a question of what does that company need to do even down to the team level like I would say within a company even teams need to sit down and think right okay what kinds of meetings do we need to have as a team to get our work done so it, it's based on who is in the team what does that team need to do um what context do they sit within and you're designing the way that they work based on that. Like a team that is working on a project for three years is going to have a very different rhythm to a team that is working on a project that needs to be delivered within the next two weeks. You know, it might be that that team that is working on a really intense project for the next two weeks, it makes sense that they just get a, a room and they camp out in that room for the two weeks. Mm. A, room, a team that is working together for over three years, something that's not so um, urgent, can probably meet, I don't know, once a week, twi- um, every couple yeah, of it's weeks. It's funny the examples you're giving, the examples you're giving 
live in a very project-based, whereas yeah. the most meetings that people are used to, I would imagine, are management-based, i.e. just the, the organization and operational running of a company, you know, how the, the, uh, the, the fundamental collaboration is the business. Is, yeah, is, I, I mean, is I, don't, the, I don't see it as different. If you've got a team that's working together in the long term, indefinitely, that team still needs to get together and sit down and say, right, what is it that we need to do as a team? And therefore, w- when and how do we need to meet to make that happen? Sure. I mean, on the other side with meetings, it's the ones that you realise this is a waste of time of a meeting. We're What's wasting that, people's bro? energy. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give an example. Will you? But, um, <laughs> but there are those times where people are like, you notice people not turning up to the meeting yeah. because they they think, am I wasting? It might just be a 30 minute meeting, but yeah. am I wasting 30 minutes of my day when I could be doing better things? Yeah. And we... We actually, I don't know if you probably know this, Andy, but we did change how we do pipeline. Mm. And I, I think that was, you know, the basis no, of yeah, our yeah. pipeline was to talk about sharing information. What are the new clients? What do they do? And it became a very much, um, oh, this this is what the client does. And, and that was about it. And and everyone was like, well... It doesn't need to be a meeting. Like, I, I, I was like... That time in the morning, yeah, we, we don't need to do that. You can have a look at the client lists yeah. of, of new clients and, and if they're of interest, you can speak to the person who's won the client. And given that I, I, I deal with a lot of Australian, New Zealand clients, at nine in the morning, I could be having a call with Australia. They're just finishing the day and I could get, I could get a job and get something done for the client. And I, I thought I'd rather be doing that and using my time effectively. So we, we changed how we did pipeline and it, it was a, also, it was sharing knowledge. What have we learned? And that was really important for me because then I was like, well, I want to add a bit of value to that and I want to listen to what people have learned. You've and, mentioned and, a particular meeting, which is a conference call meeting, which is an interesting example when it comes to meeting. You've got 20 faceless yeah, and it's voices. Different. They're not in the same room. Yeah. So you've got to try and make it engaging. And, and you know, it, it's an evolving thing. You know, we, we still need to evolve it, but it's, it's certainly where we get into the point where I think more people want to turn up to that meeting because they want to listen what 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 has someone learned this week? It might be really useful for something I'm dealing with. Or I'll come to the meeting going, I've got this problem. I don't know how to resolve it. That's a, a real valid point in that, you know, meetings should be a place where you come to learn and you share knowledge and you get your problem solved. You don't need a meeting to say, this is what I've done this week. Because you can do that in an email. That is a waste of time. And also that's sort of giving people the option to kind of opt out of meetings if they don't feel that they're, they're going to add value or they're going to get value from them as well. I mean, speaking, speaking a lot about meetings, I think mean, they are kind of like the the core of a lot of team culture, but there's so many different aspects of team culture as well. Look, I think there's there's something about, the, again, also some of the, the sessions that I run and I guess my approach to work is that it can be quite intimidating for people that aren't used to um, opening up the discussion. Mm. If you're used to like being the person making the decisions as behind closed doors, then to kind of suddenly sort of create a, be in a room where you're asking people questions and asking them for their views can be um, quite scary. Actually. For both sides? Um, definitely for the person that's used to making decisions because yeah. by asking a question, you're kind of 
uh, implying that you don't know the answer. Well, more so too. Um, and Once often in our a... culture or in organized, historical organisational culture, you have to be the one that knows the right answer. Oh. Um, and in particularly in the work that I do, creativity and innovation, there is no right answer. So we are exploring and stuff together. And that switch can be quite uncomfortable for a lot but, of people. But even more so, if you give someone a problem and ask them to think about it, when they come up with an idea, no matter how ill thought through or how little information, they attach themselves to it. So this is the difference between um, what I call divergent and convergent thinking is sort of at the beginning of an ideas generation process, like you're asking like for solutions to a problem, you're not saying, right, I want you to come up with a one right answer, particularly in a sort of brainstorming environment. It's like, let's come up with lots of potential possible solutions. And then I, th I do it with you, you know, let's come up with p potential possible solutions that will come up with a one right answer. So asking people to come up with a one right answer is... Um, it's, uh, it's, I don't it's, even necessarily people are asked that, but that isn't probably how people it's, it's, often it's respond. It's implied, it's implied. Yeah. And also that shuts people down as well. Because like, yeah. I've got to come up with the one right answer that's going to work. Actually, if you open it out, this is what um, design thinking does. Design thinking encourages people to approach problems through the mindset of a designer, where you explore what the problem is, you define what the problem is, you then create um, ideas to, to solve that problem. And then you, you converge on a final, say, prototype but you're going through this process of divergent convergent divergent convergent you're not just in right i have to come up with the one right answer straight away and make sure you subscribe to the show so you catch the next episode of business without until then from andy uri and me dominic frisbee it's cheerio cheerio